0: Well, uh, this morning we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 John, and so you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 this morning. As you're turning, I I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, is there a foolproof, uh, is there any foolproof ways uh, to prove that God is real? Are there any proofs for the existence of God that are foolproof? I think there are actually a lot of things that evidently make God real. They, they prove God to us in very profound ways. There's a lot of ways that we can know that God is real. Uh, for example, I, I've taught chemistry for many years. I don't anymore, but I taught chemistry for many years. And uh, some of you remember chemistry only as that painful time in high school, which I understand. <clears throat> But if you remember the periodic table of the elements, if you remember the periodic table of the elements, uh, it's actually an incredible proof for the existence of God. It's a wonderful thing. All matter in the universe can be described on a single sheet of paper. That should blow our minds. Uh, That is incredible that God has made the world in such a profoundly precise way that a single sheet of paper defines all matter in the universe. That's craziness. And if that doesn't show you that God is real, I don't know what else would. But what's interesting about our passage this morning is that John points to something less tangible but more powerful than the periodic table of the elements to prove that God is real. And the evidence that John points to to prove that God is real is love in the church. That is the evidence. And you might say, well, that seems a little mystical. That's a little overly emotionalized. And I understand why we think that. Because in our modern era, we've been sold the line in the church over and over again about God's love, but it rarely comes with biblical clarity about what it means that God loves sinners. But I want to show you this morning that in John's flow of argument in this section, what John intends to show us is that Christian love reveals not only the fact that God exists, but it puts His nature on display for the world to see. That's actually what John is showing us here in the verses we'll cover this morning. Just listen to them with me. He says this in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So this brings us to point one this morning, how it fits, and we're going to go back to this how does it fit section here, because I I want us to see how John has worked in his argument to this point. Uh, Remember, the first half of the book is that God is light. God is light. And we talked about how that is his, his life, his purity, his glory of who he is in his character. And the second half of the book, uh, starting in chapter 3, verse 11, is that God is love. So, we have light in, in chapters 1 and 2, and then love in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. And in the middle, in Starting in verse 29 all the way through verse 10, we have this middle section where we hear that God is righteous. So God is light, God is righteous, and God is love. And those are the three pieces of the book. And that link from light to righteousness to love I think is very clear in the way that John explains it. And John has argued that because of who God is in his characteristics, the one who is born of God, the one who has God's nature in himself, who has the spirit of God, who fellowships with God in the light that God is, will look like God in his or her life. The one who knows God emulates God in righteousness and love. Now, that's what John has been arguing for in the text, and that brings us, in one sense, to verses 7 and 8. Look at 1 John 4, 7 and 8 with me. Look what he says. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In a sense, that summarizes everything in chapters 1 through 4. In verse 8, he says, The one who does not love does not know God. Why? Why? Because God is love. This is his character. And so the one who's born of him reflects him. That's where he's taken us. And then he turns from that reality about God's character to the power of the love of God inside of us. In verse 9, he tells us the power of God's display of his love. Look at verse 9. He says, by this the love of God was manifested, was displayed in us. That God has sent his only begotten son, his only unique son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his unique child, his son, Christ, into the world so that we would have spiritual life when what we rightfully deserved was death. And then in verse 10, he shows us the power of God's love, not only in its display, but in its power to change us. Verse 10, he says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the wrath bearer for us. So, where does love come from? The power to create love in the human heart only comes from God and his love for us. And that's where we've gotten so far. And now, in verses 11 and 12, what he wants to do is show us the power of God's love in revealing God to the world. And this brings us to point two this morning the Christian duty. The Christian duty. The duty that falls on all Christians who claim to know God is in verse 11. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He frames that duty in the character of God. If God has loved us, in other words, the reality of what God has done for you as a Christian as for me as a Christian, in Christ should be our motivation for the command that comes after that. He makes those two things explicitly tight. He says the, com- the, the reality of who God is and what He's done should cause us to then do what we are called to do. God has loved us and He's put His love on display for us by sending His unique Son into the world so that we would have life instead of wrath and death and hell, what we rightfully deserved. And that is the glorious display of his love for us. And he assumes that if, if you know that, if you know that, if you know the love of God for you, then something has to move inside of you. And the thing that moves inside of you will be love that will come out of you. And let me just say here, I think it's a good place to pause and just say, if you don't know the love of God for you, if you don't understand what it means to know the love of God for you, and the death of Jesus. I would appeal to you, don't leave here. (laughs) Stick around and talk to somebody about the love of Christ for sinners. Talk to someone about what Christ has done for unrighteous people by coming into the world, by giving His life, by dying on a cross for the sins of others, not for His own, and by rising from the dead. But for those of us who are here and we know God through Christ, John says that the reality of how much God loves you now puts an obligation on you. This is so important. Now, if it were me, I would expect John to say something different. I think I would expect John to say something a little bit different in verse 11. What I would expect him to say is, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love what? Him. That would be the natural response. It's very interesting. That's what I would expect. But John actually assumes that that is true. He assumes that if you know God's love for you, you already love him, and then he takes that and he points it outward, horizontally, to those who are around you. And what John also knows is that we can pretend that we love God, can't we? We can fake it. Think about this for a minute. In fact, just turn to Luke chapter 10 with me, and I want to show you someone who claims to love God, but really doesn't? Look at Luke chapter 10. You know this story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And we can use this story as a way of uh, sort of calling people to love and sacrificial service, and that's all good. That isn't Christ's primary point in the story of the Good Samaritan. Look what happens in verse 25. Look with me. Luke 10, 25. It says, A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as himself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, interesting what he says, right? The man says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think it says? And he says the right answer. He gives the first and second commandments. He he answers rightly. And then in verse 29, look what happens. He says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, what's happened in this guy's brain here? We have to think for a minute. What's happening in this guy's brain? He starts out by saying, like, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? His answer is, love God, love others. Now, the implication is, you have to do both those things, right? But what does this guy do? He presumes that he loves God. And then he says, now, I have to justify myself. Who's my neighbor? Now, why does he have to do that? Because anyone who knows him, his friends would say, well, I mean, he loves people who are like him, He loves good Jews. He he loves the scribes that are his friends. He loves people that agree with him. He doesn't love everybody. And he knows that. And so he has to justify himself. But he presumes that no one can know whether or not he loves God. Jesus ties these two together, and this man pulls them apart. Isn't that interesting? And why would he do that? Because he wants to justify himself. In fact, Jesus gives the story of the Good Samaritan to show him that he actually didn't love anyone else, and what's the implication of that? He doesn't love God. If you love God, you will love, is what Jesus is saying, and he'll love everybody, and this guy says, but who's my neighbor? And what Jesus says is, you don't get it. You don't love people, and that proves that you don't love God. That's the implication that Christ wants us to take away. John was standing there when Jesus said this. And so in 1 John 4.11, John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, that's the, sh- that's the way we show that we love God, is that we love one another. That's the evidence of that truth. And the word that John uses here in 1 John 4.11 is a very strong word. It's the word for obligation. It's the word for a debt, something you owe. He's already used it twice, actually, in chapter 2, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 16. It is compulsory. It's your duty. It's not obligation. I mean, it's not optional, right? And what's fascinating about this is that John actually assumes that the one who has experienced the love of God to them now has the power to fulfill this duty. They have the power to do it. And of course, we do have the power to do this, don't we? Do you have the power to love one another? Absolutely you do. Where does it come from? It comes from verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And if God so loves us, now we are obligated to love others. That's what John connects these, that's how John connects these together. So John commands us to love each other because of God's love, and that is our duty as Christians. We must do this. It's not optional. But that isn't the end of his argument here, and this is fascinating, that he actually has a purpose for what he says next in verse 12. And this is point three, the invisible made visible. The invisible made visible. Now, this is one of those moments in Johannine literature when John the Apostle is writing to us when he stops you in your tracks. Look at verse 12. Look what he says here. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. Now, (laughs) I often come to phrases in John, and I think to myself, What? (laughs) Why would you put that here? Like, of all the places that you could put it, why here? It seems so odd. But the answer is actually that John is making a comment about what love does in revealing God. Now, that phrase should sound familiar to you. The phrase at the beginning of verse 12 should sound familiar. He says, no one has seen God at any time. Where has he said that before? He actually said that in the book of John, in the gospel of John, chapter 1. Look there with me, John chapter 1, and look back at John chapter 1, verse 18. I want to show you this. John 1, 18. And we'll start in verse 14. I want to, I want to show you his argument here. In John chapter 1 verse 14 he says the word that is Christ uh, the word the revelation of God became flesh and he dwelt among us he tabernacled among us and we saw his glory glorious of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth John that's John the Baptist testified about him and cried out saying this was he of whom I said he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then we have this phrase, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Exactly the same phrase for John. And then he says this, the only begotten God, that is the unique God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You know, who's the unique God who is in the bosom of the Father? It's Christ. He says, no one has seen God the Father. No one has. So how do we know what God the Father is like? Well, we know what God the Father is like because of Jesus. The one unique Son of God, the one who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him, literally. He's shown us. He's brought out God's character in his life. And that's the exact same phrase that john uses in verse 12 no one has seen god at any time so what is john doing when he uses that phrase here why would he use that exact same phrase in chapter 4 verse 12 that's the question that we have to ask ourselves but that is the point that john is making right we haven't seen god the father jesus showed us god the father and now he tells us, no one has seen God at any time. We haven't seen God the Father, so then what? What's his answer to that? And this is point A, God's presence in love. Now, what John does here is he brings two pieces together. He brings two pieces together. The first thing he says in verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's his phrase. If we love one another, God abides in us. Now, there are two ways that we could take that, that phrase, God abides in us. One way would be personal. If we love each other, then God abides inside of each of us personally. And that would make sense because John has actually already argued that earlier in the book, hasn't he? In, John chapter, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, he says that God's seed abides in us. He's talking individually, Christians. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us, and we have been born again through Christ, And he's gonna speak personally again after this in this text. But the other way to take this is as a corporate reality. It's not individually, it's corporate. And what does he mean then if it's corporate? That if we love one another, God abides in us corporately. And what's interesting is John uses a phrase in Greek that would lean us toward corporate, this corporate application of this phrase. John is speaking corporately. What he's saying is this, as we love each other in the church, God abides or God remains among us. What does that mean? John is saying that God's presence is manifestly clear in a group of Christians who love each other. That's what he's saying. And I would venture to say that it's, it's much more manifestly clear when people who are different from each other love each other in the church. It's much more clear. Not only in John's day, but now. When people who come from totally different backgrounds, whether it's race or socioeconomic status or interest groups and backgrounds, when they love each other in the church, the only answer for that is God. That's the only answer for that. Now, we're going to talk about this more at the end, because there's some massive implications to this. But this is what God is doing in the church when we love each other. He's literally, and this is so important, He's making Himself seen. No one has seen God at any time, but when we love each other, God abides in us. In other words, He becomes manifest to us as we love each other. But there's a second component here, and this is point B. It's God's purpose perfected. Look at how he ends verse 12. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now again, there's two questions here. The first is this. Is John speaking singularly or plurally? Is it individual or corporate? He's already been arguing for corporate and so I'm I'm gonna stick with that train of thought, right? He's arguing corporately. Now, he's talking about God's love for us and that that love now is perfected among us. So, he's saying not only is God seen in our love for each other, but God's love for us corporately is perfected in us. Now, what does it mean that God's love is perfected among us? What does the word perfected mean here? Does that mean that we love perfectly like God loves? Like when we love each other, we will now love perfectly. There'll never be any gap or any blip in our love for one another because we're now loving perfectly the way God loves. Of course not. Because all of us are still sinners. We're still of our flesh. We're not going to be perfect. But you can tell, I think, from the subpoint B here, what I think. John uses the term perfected here, and that word means to reach a goal or a finish line or an intention. This idea is crucial the goal or the finish line or the purpose of God's love for us is not just that we would receive love, but that we would love each other. That's God's goal. John is arguing for us that God's goal in his love for us is ultimately that we would love. That's God's goal. That's his intention of his love for us. He has a purpose. Now, again, we're going to come back to this because there's big implications for that at the end. We'll come back to it. But what I want to do is just take these and tie them together. What John is saying is that his love for us and the the truths of the gospel are intended by God to produce among us love for one another. That's his intention. He gives us the gospel not only so that we would know his love for us, but so that we would love each other. And we should be expecting that. We should actually be expecting that. Why? Why? Well, first of all, Jesus said it, right? What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. And the second, he says, is like it or that it flows from it that we love one another. If you do these two, you fulfill the whole law and the prophets. So God's intention for his love for us is also that we would love each other and thereby obey him. Paul says love is the fulfillment of the whole law. James says if you love one another, you keep the royal law, which is the fulfillment of the whole law. So God's goal or purpose is to create a group of people from totally different backgrounds, totally different socioeconomic standards, all these different things, different countries, different places, and bring them together into a group of people that love one another. That's his purpose. Now, why? That's my question. Why? Why would he do this and have this as his goal? What's he doing? What's he doing? And John actually gives us a hint of that. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, God's goal, God's purpose has something to do with him being seen. And this is point four the manifestation of God's glory. The manifestation of God's glory. Now, the answer, I think, to this question is ultimately this, that we as a church and as believers manifest God's glory to a watching world when we love each other. It's so important. And why would I say this? The word glory isn't even in these verses. It's not even in these verses. Like, why would we say it's God's glory and showing God's glory? It's not there. Well, there's a couple reasons that we would say that. Number one, God's goal in everything that he does is for his glory. So, of course, this is included in that. He is glorifying himself in some way in the church. God's intention is always to manifest himself to the world. But I want to show you specifically in the text. Look what he says again. Look at the flow of thought. Look at the end of verse, actually, just look at verse 8. He says, the one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love, right? God is love. So, how can God put his character of love on display in the world? The best way that he can show the whole world his character of love is by what? By gathering a group of people together who love each other the way he loves them. He is putting himself on display as we love each other. That's what he's doing. God's love finds its completion in us because the unseen God is actually seen when Christians love each other. God is putting the glory of his character in love on display in the church all the time. That's what he's actually doing. That's what he's doing. When we love each other, and I would say particularly when you love people who are different than you, when you love people who are different than you. And we keep loving people who are different than us. God puts his character on display for the world to see. Now, why? Why? Why is it so profoundly clear that God's glory is on display in the church? Because of what Jesus said, right? What did Jesus say? If you love those who love you, you're not different than the Gentiles, If you love those who are like you, you're not different than unbelievers. But if you love those who are not like you, if you love those who are not kind to you, if you love your enemies, you are different. Because that's what God has done. Christian love triumphs over differences. And it bridges between people who would not otherwise love each other. And when that happens, God's glory is put on display. Now that happens on a multitude of levels. The first level that that happens on is on the human level, just interpersonally. People see Christians loving each other, or they should, and what they should say is, that's different. Those two people should not love each other. What's going on there? Remember what Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are what? My disciples. How? if you have excellent theology? No, (laughs) not that theology is bad, it's good. How do we show the world that we are the disciples of Christ? By voting Republican. No! How do we show the world that we're disciples of Christ? By loving each other. That's how we do it. That's how God designed the church the way that we show the world that we are true disciples and put his glory on display is by loving each other. Now, this is where we started. What is the greatest proof for the existence of God? There's lots of things. It's creation. It's very obvious that God is real. Like, you don't even have to try, right? You have to close your eyes to not see that God is real. The existence of evil proves that God is real. The nation of Israel proves that God is real. Chemistry proves that God is real. But one of those things that makes it evident that God is real is the church. It should be. So it's happening at a human level that love between believers is putting God on display. But it also happens at a cosmic level. Now, this should blow your mind. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Joe read this for us this morning. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Paul does something here that is truly spectacular. He he lifts our eyes higher than just the human level in the church. We're going to walk through this text. I'm going to show it to you. In verse 1, he said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. God gave Paul a responsibility for the Gentiles. And He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. So what's the mystery? Well, it's something he's written. Verse 4, by referring to this, you you, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Still hasn't given us the mystery yet. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men and as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, still no mystery, right? What is the mystery? Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the gospel in Christ Jesus, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says, Jew and Gentile together. That's the mystery. Now, we're doing Acts and care groups, right? And we're about to cover Acts chapter 15. What happens when Jews and Gentiles come together? There's fights. They have to have a council, a church council, to determine it's okay, let them in. It's hard for the Jews to embrace people who are so radically different from them. Paul says, that is the mystery that we've come together in the church. Look at verse 7. He says, Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So God gave Paul grace in power to make this known to the world. Verse 8, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So to preach the gospel to Gentiles. That's the first grace of God for Paul. I get to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They get to hear the good news of the gospel. You don't have to become a Jew. You can know the true and living God without all that that comes with the Mosaic law. He says, that's a mystery. And I get to preach it to them. And second, look at verse nine. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. That mystery working itself out. Which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So he says, the administration of the mystery. How does the mystery of Jew and Gentile come together? How does it work itself out? In the church. The church is Jew and Gentile coming together. And look what he says in verse 10. He says, so that. So the church is manifesting something. So that, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Where? Where? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What is Paul saying? He is telling us that Jews and Gentiles, who should hate each other, but instead they love each other, they're being put on display. And who is watching? Who's watching? Angels are watching the church. Angels are watching the church. That's wild. People of different races who should be hating each other but who love each other. People uh, of different social statuses who should despise each other but instead love one another and help each other. People of different interests who normally ignore or mock each other and instead they love each other. What's, what's happening? What Paul says is that the, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are watching this happen. and they're seeing the multifaceted wisdom of God and they're worshiping him for it that's what's happening in church on a sunday this ups the ante a little bit doesn't it it's not just well i come and you know i hang out and i talk to my few friends that's kind of it no the angels are watching you the angels are watching the church Literally, the angels are like in stadium seating around us. We're we're all going to watch the Super Bowl today if you're a football fan. Millions of people watch the Super Bowl. That's like a zero, cosmically. The angels are in stadium seating watching the church, and they watch two people who should never love each other, Jew and Gentile, different races, different socioeconomic status, different interest groups, and they look at that and they say, wow, wow. God, you're incredible. You can do that with people. You can take people who should hate each other and make them love each other. You're amazing. And the angels worship God and they glorify him in heaven because you talk to someone different than you and you love them on a Sunday morning. That's what's actually happening in the church. When our hearts love each other, it is glorious to God. It's glorious to him. His nature is being put on display. And the angels in heaven worship him because we love each other. Because he's the only one who could ever accomplish that in us. Now, if that's true, and it is, the opposite is also true, isn't it? It's sad. If we don't love each other, what happens God's glory gets tarnished, doesn't it? If we let grudges grow up between us instead of offering forgiveness, God's glory is tarnished. If we allow cliques in the church to divide us, God's glory gets tarnished. If we allow racial complexities to break unity in the church, God's glory gets tarnished if we allow social strata to cause us to scoff at people and to cut them off, God's glory gets tarnished. If we allow our pride to blind us from our responsibility to offer love rather than receive it, God's glory gets tarnished. Let me say that last one again. If we allow our pride to blind us from our responsibility to offer love rather than to receive it, God's glory gets tarnished. If we stop loving each other, God is defamed. He's defamed because the gospel isn't working, it's not doing the work that it ought to do. God isn't seen, His glory isn't manifested, not only humanly, but cosmically. This is how serious God takes love in the church. It's His purpose. It's His goal. It puts His glory on display for people, and the heavens sing His glory when we love each other. Now, again, I say this every time I preach a sermon on love. I'm so thankful for our church. You guys do this so well, so well. It's a joy to be your pastor. I know Joe and Stephen, I echo their, their hearts too. We, we say this all the time in elders' meetings, we're just like, what a wonderful thing it is to get to be over Faith Bible Church. It's a joy. But like Paul told the Thessalonians, we, need, we should excel still more, right? We should do this more. So here's the question. How do we guard against losing this love and how do we grow in that love, Right? Those two are the same thing in one sense. How do we guard against losing it and how do we grow in it? And where would we look for an answer in the context of 1 John? I think the answer is pretty obvious, right? Where do we go to find the power to keep loving? Where do we go to find the power to grow in love? We can't look at ourselves because I can't. I can't do it because I'm broken. I'm a sinful person in my flesh. I'm not going to love well. So where can I go where I'm going to find the power to love? And the answer is just one verse up from verse 11, isn't it? Just look at verse 10 again. And this is why this is the most important verse in the whole Bible. Because what does he say? In this is love. You want to grow in love so that the angels worship God? You want to glorify God with your life by loving people who are different than you? We're going to get the power to do that. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what do we have to do? We have to come to God and say, Lord, I want to grow. I don't love the way that I should. I want to grow because I'm tarnishing your glory. I'm not loving the right way. I feel more comfortable around people like me. It's hard for me to break out of that and love people who are different than me. Lord, I want to change Help me change. What's gonna cause me to love others in a self-sacrificial way? And what's his answer? Christ. Look at the cross. What did Jesus do? He earned heaven and then he took your hell. He became the propitiation for your sins. So what would John say to us as a church? He would say, believe. He would say, Believe. Believe what God has done for you in Christ. Trust the love that God has for us seen in the death of Christ and his propitiation, his wrath bearing for your sins. And the more we focus on and we believe that reality, the more we will love each other in the same way that Christ has loved us. And this works not just in the church, this works in marriages, it works in friendships, it works in parenting. You only love as much as you understand you are loved. You only love as much as you understand you are loved. And so we need to, as the song says, turn our eyes upon Jesus. That's what it is to love and that's how God will produce love. And that is why God gets all the glory in the church for what he does in his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how it lifts our eyes off of ourselves, points us upward. Lord, it shows us glorious things that we would never have known. Lord, it's easy to get myopic, to look down, to focus on ourselves, to focus on our need to be loved. And yet, Lord, what you are calling us to do in this text is to fulfill our duty, Lord, to love each other. And that as we do that, Lord, you are being seen. Lord, what a stunning thing, Lord, that we as a church can put your glory on display, Lord, not only to people, but to the angels. Lord, that you would cause us to love people who we would never naturally love. Lord, that is only a work that you can do. So, Lord, I pray for us each individually, Lord, that you would fix our eyes on Christ. that we would focus our hearts and minds on the good news of what he has done for us in becoming the propitiation for our sins. Lord, that we would honestly and rightfully confess our lack of love, our failings in these areas. Lord, that each of us has had and that we would confess those sins and that we would trust that all of those sins were carried by Christ. Lord, that the one who loved perfectly took our lack of love onto himself and paid the price for our sinful selfishness. Lord, that as we see that love for us, that it would move us, cause us to love him, cause us to love you. Lord, cause us to love one another in greater and greater ways. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done in our church, that you continue to do. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work among us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know this love now, Lord, I pray that you would show them, Lord, that you would cause them to see, for the, maybe for the first time, that they've never truly loved because they've never known what it is to be loved. Lord, cause them to repent of their sin, to turn to you, to find forgiveness in Christ, and to know your love. Lord, we thank you for your Son. In his name we pray.